Hello and welcome to Season 1 of Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we'll discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean, South American history, post-colonial literature and decolonial thoughts. If you would like to join in the discussion, please email me at jamie at colouredsouls.co.uk or find me on Twitter under the name Coloured Souls UK. On today's show, we will look at a subject which has raised a little bit of controversy uh, in the press in recent months. We will discuss critical race theory. What is it? What is the purpose of it? Why do we study it? And should we study it? Firstly, I'd like to take a look at the definition of critical race theory and clear up some of the misconceptions which seem to have become synonymous with the tenets. Now, much of the information in this podcast from today has been collected from the amazing work by David Gilborn, Kevin Hilton, Derek Bell, and many others. So what is critical race theory? Well, critical race theory is a body of scholarship and it's steeped in radical activism that seeks to explore and challenge the prevalence of racial inequality in society. It is based on the understanding that race and racism are the product of social thought and power relations. Critical race theorists endeavour to expose the way in which racial inequality is maintained through the operation of structures and assumptions that appear normal and somewhat unremarkable. Now, at this stage, I think it's important to say that critical race theory is a framework, so it's not a theory of race and racialized relations. It's not a singular agenda, it is in fact multifaceted. It's not a singular view, but a plurality of perspectives. It's not a singular discipline, it's transdisciplinary. And it's not fully formed yet, but it's emergent and organic. So in recent months, critical race theory has received a great deal of publicity on both sides of the Atlantic. Much of this discussion is fueled by gross and inaccurate caricatures of critical race theory and has led to many negative feelings, and these feelings have manifested into several right-wing publications, radio shows and news programs to bash researchers and advocates of critical race theory. Now, contrary to some of the depictions on Twitter, talk shows, and even in Parliament, critical race theory does not view all white people as evil and racist. It does not peddle a view of black people as powerless victims. It does not imagine that racism is the only social problem and thereby raise issues of class, gender, disability, and other forms of discrimination. And equally, critical race theory does not want to remove white history from the curriculum. Now, critical race theory, or CRT, is a thoughtful and multifaceted approach to understanding how racism operates across society, including through both individual actions and structural processes that shape the everyday reality in education, the health service, the criminal justice system and politics. This racism is not usually the overt racism that we saw in the mid to late 20th century. It's more sinister than that. In order to unearth the racist behaviours now, we must look at the very foundations of the system that we are feeding every day. The same systems that select which children are eligible for pupil premium, the system that decides who is entitled to social housing, who can and can't enter various various areas of society, who can be lauded in the press for their action whilst their black counterparts are scrutinised, the same system that can deny Caribbean boys the highest grades possible by placing a low ceiling on their attainment. We're going to take a very quick look at the origins of critical race theory. 
Now, CRT began in the US, but has grown to become an international approach used by scholars in North America, Europe, Australia, Africa, and South America. The historical context in which CRT emerged is crucial to understanding its development and ambitions as an intellectual and political movement. The foundations can be found in the 1970s leftist legal movement Critical Legal Studies, or CLS. And this saw a small group of academics deconstruct traditional liberal approaches to legal ideology and discourse with a view to better conceptualizing how structural or class inequalities were perpetuated and maintained in US society. However, many scholars of color who had initially identified with the language and goals of CLS, for example, Derek Bell, Kimberley Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, uh, Cheryl Harris, Patricia Williams, came to view came to the view that it failed to engage usefully with the reality of racism by reductively positioning it as simply analogous and class-based discrimination. So CRT developed in part as a response to the shortcomings of critical legal studies, and CRT scholars involved in the development described the process. Critical race theory sought to stage a simultaneous encounter with the exhausted vision of reformist civil rights scholarship and the emergent critique of the legal left scholarship. CRT's engagement with the discourse of civil rights reform stemmed directly from our lived experience as students and teachers in the nation's law schools. Now we have seen and suffered the concrete consequences that followed from liberal legal thinkers' failure to address the constrictive role that racial ideology played in the composition and culture of American institutions. Now, there is no single position statement that defines CRT or critical race theory. Those who use and contribute to CRT are a very diverse group of people, including members of different ethnic groups, different nationalities, different genders, and people with disabilities. The approach continues to undergo revision and refinement in response to the scholarship experiences of CRT theorists and in relation to new developments in legal doctrine and policy discourse. However, CRT scholars do have in common a social constructivist perspective of race and racism and a commitment to understanding and opposing the systems that subjugate people of colour. So let's now take a look at some of the central principles of critical race theory. Now there are several themes that are central to CRT. The centrality of racism being number one. CRT begins with a number of basic insights. One is that racism is normal, not aberrant in British society. Because racism is an ingrained feature of our landscape, it looks ordinary and natural to persons within the culture. CRT regards racism as so deeply entrenched in the social order that it is often taken for granted and viewed as natural. CRT scholars emphasise that racism does not necessarily operate in crude, explicit forms, but operates in a socio-political context where it is becoming more and more embedded and increasingly nuanced. Racism can be evidenced in the outcome of processes and relations, irrespective of intent. Secondly is white supremacy. Understanding the role and power of white supremacy in creating and reinforcing racial subordination and maintaining a normalized white privilege is central to the CRT imperative to reveal and oppose racial inequality. In this perspective, white supremacy does not relate to the obvious crude race hatred of extremist groups, but to forces that saturate society as a whole. By white supremacy, I do not mean to allude only to the self-conscious racism of white supremacist hate groups. I refer instead 
to a political, economic and cultural system in which whites overwhelmingly control power and material resources. Conscious and unconscious ideas of white supremacy and entitlement are widespread and relations of white dominance and non-white subordination are daily reenacted across a broad array of institutions and social settings. Take for example the world's richest people. Of the top 10 there appears Zong Shanshan of China, the only non-white on this all-male list. This presents a particular challenge because of taken-for-granted privileges of whiteness. White scholars engaging in CRT must strive to be aware of and committed to critically interrogating their own racial privilege and unmasking the invisibility of racism. Third, voices of people of colour. CRT places particular importance on the voices and experiences of people of colour, their insights into the operation of racism and their understanding of being racially minoritised. It is not assumed that their accounts represent one singular truth or reality, rather that their position at the margins of racist society means that they will be means that they will be able to make an especially insightful contribution. Such accounts sometimes take the form of storytelling or counter-narrative and may be semi-autobiographical or allegorical in nature. As a tool, storytelling can act as a powerful means of enabling racially minoritized groups to speak back about racism and facilitate psychic preservation, a means for psychological and spiritual empowerment in response to the depleting effects of racism. CRT scholars are not making up stories. They are constructing narratives out of the historical, socio-cultural and political realities of their lives and those of people of colour. For example, The Colonizer and the Colonized by Albert Memmi, which helped to give context to the novels he wrote, and Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth and Black Skin White Masks, show that storytelling has the potential to act as a persuasive and potentially transformative tool to challenge liberal racist ideology. The approach has been taken up by a number of prominent CRT theorists, but Derek Bell's scholarship is undoubtedly the most well-known and influential. Bell uses chronicles or metaphorical tales as a powerful and compelling means of critically examining and revealing racial and legal injustices. Fourth, interest convergence. Racism serves to reinforce and advance white supremacy, helping to maintain a status quo that, while disproportionate or inequitable to racial minorities, allows whites to retain their positions of power. White people therefore have little incentive to work to eradicate racism. However, there are times when greater race equality operates in the perceived interests of white people, and this notion of interest convergence helps to explain how advances can be achieved. The interest of blacks in achieving racial equality will be accommodated only when it converges with the interests of whites, this is according to Bell in 1980. An analysis of past victories in the struggle for race equality confirms Bell's analysis. Advances for blacks always coincided with changing economic conditions and the self-interest of white elites. Sympathy, mercy and evolving standards of social decency and conscience amounted to little if anything. Bell has analysed civil rights legislation and demonstrated the modes through which interest convergence operates. The concept has been examined by other critical race theorists in relation to landmark cases and policies that ostensibly advance the interests of race equality, but where in reality 
there is little long-lasting change or improvement in life chances for racially minoritized groups. Finally, we have intersectionality. Now, while CRT is centrally concerned with the structures and relations that maintain racial inequality, it does not operate to the exclusion or disregard of other forms of injustice. It has recognized that no person has a single, simplistic, unitary identity. Intersectionality, as originally advanced by Kimberley Crenshaw, speaks to an understanding of the complex and multiple ways in which various systems of subordination can come together at the same time. Adopting an intersectional framework allows for the exploration of differences within and between groups taking account of issues such as historical and socio-political context while still maintaining awareness of racial inequalities. Related to intersectionality is the concept of differential racialization, which is concerned with the way in which dominant society racializes and gives focus to different minoritized groups at different times to suit hegemonic arguments of racial superiority and inferiority. An example of differential racialization in UK education debates positions Chinese and Indian students as both aberrant and unique model minorities in juxtaposition to their less successful black and white peers. So why study critical race theory? Well, young children need to be aware of white privilege and the responsibilities that this places on white people to provide resources and opportunities to people of colour. If we look historically at the ways in which Asian, African, South American and other non-European cultures have been treated, then we can see how this weight of responsibility may hang heavily around the necks of future generations. Equally, people of colour also need to be aware of their oppression and victimisation in society, so that they are assertive enough to demand their rights and reparations of past wrongs. Without an education in CRT, many children will grow up believing that all races should be held to the same standards despite the glaring inequalities in society and the horrific past wrongs that need to be righted. It is these exact inequalities that have young black boys stereotyped as criminals. In order to function as a truly multicultural, diverse society, we need to be more racially aware. We need to raise our children to recognise their place in society as either privileged or victimised, and then to work to correct these disparities. Children need to be aware of microaggressions and that inappropriate behaviours, phrases, mannerisms and references can trigger oppressed groups and remind them of the horrors that their ancestors endured at the hands of their white oppressors. In order to progress as a society, the feelings of victimised people need to be nurtured and protected because it is only through this healing process that the world can begin to correct its dark and oppressive past. Now again, as I said earlier, that's not to say that people of colour need to have a victim mentality. It is simply to look at the actions of the past, to look at what happened between each of the cultures and to say yes we were victimized in the past however we can learn from that we can build and we can be stronger when i first started looking into critical race theory i asked this question to myself why do the government fear critical race theory and equally why do they fear the black lives matter movement well first and foremost any challenge to the dominant ideology will be seen as a threat and crt is no different when viewed in social 
When viewed with social justice as the crux, it is clear that the purpose is not to name and shame the descendants of slave owners. The purpose is to expose the leveraging of power based on a system that has been designed to support particular groups of society whilst others language in the ghettos of America, the tenement yards of Jamaica and the council estates of the UK. This system of ingrained oppression celebrates piracy in primary schools. Pirates such as John Locke, the great-great-grandfather of the philosopher, also known as John Locke, and Francis Drake are just two names amongst the early pioneers of Britain's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. For more information on John Locke and the origins of the transatlantic slave trade, see Black and British by David Olusoga. There also appears to be a general feeling of discomfort running through the discourse of many right-wing politicians. Anybody that wants to discuss the uncomfortable past of the British Empire or the inequalities that black, Asian and other minority ethnic groups face on a daily basis seem to have been given the moniker woke, cloaked quite heavily in a derogatory term. This is just another way in which a movement is belittled and pushed even further to the fringes. The lack of interest and blind opposition to discussing unconscious bias and how this has affected many people in minority communities highlights once again that despite us all being equal, some are still more equal than others. We can see this fear as the government regularly condemn the actions of the Black Lives Matter protests. Now part of the problem that I have seen personally with the Black Lives Matter movement has been the involvement of some of the white protesters. That's not to say that white protesters are not welcome. Uh, for example, when the statue of Edward Coulson was pulled down and rolled into the harbour in Bristol, the vast majority of the perpetrators that we see in the pictures are white. When a black police officer was racially abused on the steps of number 10, it was by white members. Now again, I'm not saying that white people should not be a part of the movement as the entire point of the movement is to raise awareness across all ethnic groups. But as the movement is under such intense scrutiny, like the Black Panthers before, the only way to succeed is to not play into the image of a riotous mob that the media are so desperate to see. And it appears once again that there may be a small minority of troublemakers that wish to infiltrate groups with humanist motives in order to sully their reputation. Now personally, I think that a removal of statues would be a positive step for Britain. Because, again, this is not to hide the past, as, let's be honest, Britain's good at that anyway. It's to accept that life has moved on since then and that the blind veneration of slavers and colonialists do nothing, absolutely nothing, to promote inclusion or the diversity that is modern Britain. So I'm going to give you a very brief history on the Black Lives Matter movement. It was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer. Their mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination, innovation and centering black joy, they are promoting immediate improvements in our lives. This has been denigrated many times by counter-narratives such as Blue Lives Matter in defense of the police and All Lives Matter. Now the problem with these counter-narratives is that while, yes, all lives absolutely do matter, black lives have appeared to be expendable throughout history. Now, as we know, the African slave trade exacerbated the caste system, segregation, and fueled many studies based on biased science in order to prove that somehow black people were genetically inferior. The employment system in America and UK were heavily based against black workers, and there are many people that remember seeing the no blacks, no dogs, no Irish signs peppering the UK, which denied access to housing and employment. 
The civil rights movements, for example, Rosa Parks refusing to be segregated on public transport anymore, public lynchings, the murder of powerful black voices, for example, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, or Fred Hampton. These hate crimes were not isolated to America. In Renietta Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, she recounts the story of a black seaman by the name of Charles Wooden, who was thrown into the King's Dock in Liverpool in the 1920s by an enraged white crowd following a string of police raids on the homes of black people. As the man swam, desperately trying to pull himself to safety, he was pelted with bricks until he sank below the surface. Sometime later, sometime later, his lifeless body was dredged from the murky water. The days following his murder, Liverpool was held in the grips of a white mob rule as the streets became dangerous for any black person. And these atrocities haven't gone away, they've just become more hidden. Whilst we may not see public aggression as often, these have been replaced by microaggressions under the guise of equality monitoring. All businesses have a legal obligation to employ a specific percentage of black or minority ethnic workers, and this has led to many people being employed despite lacking skill in that job and without being fully aware. Some people may look at a black person in a certain position and wonder if a white person could actually do that job better. So with all of this in mind, why do many right-wing politicians fear the Black Lives Matter movement or the so-called wokeists? Well, the short answer is power. Think back to Enoch Powell and his infamous Rivers of Blood speech in which he condemned immigration, demonised black youths and predicted a time in which, and I quote, the black man will hold the whip hand over the white man. And what tosh. These were the words of someone that felt so insecure about the way in which white power had dominated and assumed that black people would try to do the same. There is nothing to suggest that this would ever be the case. All of the movements throughout recent history have been about securing equal rights or for regaining control of what was stolen. Look at Angola and their battles with Portugal, Martin Luther King's peaceful protests to secure the right to vote, Steve Biko's torture and murder and Mandela's suffering to help end the apartheid in South Africa. There has been violence, and whilst the loss of life is always tragic, look at how white societies have turned to war to settle their conflicts. In fact, a very brief internet search will give you the dates of all the wars that both Britain and America have been involved in, and are still involved in today. Mostly, these wars are to seize even more control over their overseas territories. And so we can think of it in this context. Many European countries, and the USA, have control over the central banks of African and South American countries. Why is this? It would seem that physical bondage has made way for economic bondage, and our children will continue to pay the price for even the slimmest view of freedom. Now whilst CRT will not solve all of the problems faced by black communities across the world, what it can and will do is allow members of white societal groups to look at the actions of their ancestors and judge for themselves whether or not the benefits in place for the white communities truly serve the world. When we look at the underdevelopment of the African continent and the lack of respect given to leaders of African countries when they want to sever ties with European economic bondage, see for example Ghana and the cessation of the cacao trade with Switzerland, and we can see that these cleavages become canyons that are highly, that are nigh on impossible to bridge. So as we progress deeper into the 21st century, we must keep our critical eyes on the policies that are coming through from our world leaders. We must keep our fists raised and our voices clear. For it is with this unity that we can truly change the way the world views black societies. And let's keep in mind the fourth principle of Kwanzaa, Ujamaa, or cooperative economics. 
By supporting black business and black scholarship, we can raise self-awareness and regain our rightful place, not as rivals, but as equals to every political race on the planet. Thank you for listening to today's show. And if you'd like to join in the discussion, please email me, jamie at coloredsouls.co.uk or find me on Twitter as coloredsoulsuk. To be notified of every time a new episode goes live, please hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app or visit coloredsouls.co.uk forward slash podcast. If you'd like to contribute to the ongoing production of this show, then please buy me a book. Uh, Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash coloredsouls. Thank you again for listening and I'll speak with you soon.